Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today, I'm catching up with the Kyoto Brothers. They were the first to hire me when I moved to LA. You may have seen their work in Pee Wee's Playhouse, Elf, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Team America, and most recently, Alien Christmas. Today, we're going to get the behind the scenes exclusive. Steven and Ed, welcome. I like watched everything online that I could possibly find about you guys tonight, even though I already know you. <laughs> Steven's going to join in a second. Oh, cool. Yeah. And you've become a grandpa now. Times two. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's big, too. Yeah. Yeah, they're a blast. Aw. Are you doing some babysitting? Oh, yeah. We, we watch them. We, they're with us quite a bit. Aw, that's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Yeah, it's great. I just can't believe, like, you guys were the first ones to hire me in L.A., and it was on the Washington Burns Project. Oh, funny. Yeah. That, that was a good time. <laughs> yeah. Do you still keep in touch with anybody from that? You guys are, like, incredible relationship builders. In one of the interviews, I heard that Bob Self was the one who published the book. Yes. So you were totally talking to him when I worked for you guys. Yeah, it was that, that relationship. Mike Van Eaton introduced us. That's the start. He published the book. And, you know, I, we had pitched, this started as a pitch before even that. The book just made it a little more tangible. John responded to it. And, uh, I mean, it took forever to, to get going, but it was really that that seed. And, and, and John Favreau was back in Elf. And that was around the time that I had worked for you guys also. So, yeah. yeah. A long time in the in the making. I think, yep. I think you guys said 14 years. Yeah. The book came out in 2005. Wow. <laughs> That's how Hollywood works, right? Overnight sensation. <laughs> and I just can't even believe, too, that, like, you all were going to release it in 2019, and you finished it up, like, right before Christmas, right? Yeah. What, what happened is they, they wanted it for 2019, and I had laid out schedules. We, can, we have to do this, 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 all this thing by certain dates. And the business side of it just was, was screwed up. The, the writer's deal, the production deal with the company that we were working with, and then their deal with Netflix just took forever and ever. So I'd had this big cushion of time in the beginning that I called soft pre-production. And we kept eating into that, eating into that, eating into that. So as long as it didn't cut into pre-production, we were kind of reasonably still okay. And, you know, we, we've been around long enough that we knew that if we said, oh, we can't make it by for 2019, and then they said, oh, we'll just wait. You know, when you put things aside, lots of things happen. People get fired. People lose interest. You know, something bigger, better comes along. John loses interest. You know, he would have gotten maybe knee deep into Mandalorians, you know, that would have come along and he would have been totally, well, he was totally distracted to some degree. I mean, he was focused. That was his primary focus. So, you know, the idea was to never say we couldn't do it until they came to the realization that, you know, midway through when John had some, some rewrite notes that they started kind of freaking out. Well, if we take too long on this, that day becomes in jeopardy. And then they said, oh, don't worry, guys. We really didn't need to air that in 2019 anyway. We, we could wait till 2019, till 2020. But by then we were already in production. So it was hard. To, it would have been hard to stop production. We just soldiered on as best we could. But we took advantage of the, the time. We had some hiatuses that gave us a chance to recharge creatively and then pick it back up. Now that we had lit that fuse, we still had to keep moving before it all exploded. It was a mad dash to the finish to get it done. Then we were in post and then COVID hit. And that just complicated things tremendously. Yeah. What was that like when COVID hit? We, had, we, had, we shut down. We had 
we, we were, luckily we're small. We just had a small editorial staff on and we had six VFX artists on uh, working in a facility that we had to shut down. The plan was to keep working remotely with just our VFX supervisor because the remote server wasn't set up and it was just more complicated to do it. But then uh, things just start taking longer and longer. And then we had to uh, wait out the COVID when the town reopened, we brought everybody back with a um, under strict COVID protocols. It was uh, pretty interesting. But in the middle of that, we were also, we were in production on a feature, a stop motion feature that actually got shut down. And they, we were dark from March until August on that. Has that started back up now? Yeah, actually, we, we started up. We finished nine weeks during COVID. No problems. Uh, we were testing weekly. Uh, just, just all these really, again, strict protocols and over 500 COVID tests over nine weeks, no, no positives. Wow. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Irina. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Doing pretty good. Oh, my God. You guys finally made it to Netflix. Was this the first time? Uh, yeah. yeah. What did that feel like? Well, it's, what was really cool, when you walk into their lobby on the first floor, the entire wall is LED screen. And all it's promotion for all their shows. So you're actually walking into a wall of Stranger Things or something. It was pretty spectacular. Really great place. John Favreau thought it would be better to go the streaming route than to go theatrical with this concept. And uh, he was right. Like so many things, he kind of steered us into this new technology. Imagine if we had done a feature length film and it ended up being, you know, released right now. It would be dead. So all in all, it worked out in linking up with Netflix. What yeah, was it like, like walking in there and what was that meeting like? Like, tell me about that. It wasn't as intimidating as I thought. We kind of knew, like we knew Mike Moon, a guy we've known for a while. He was just peripherally involved. We met a bunch of new people. It was all right. Actually, it was neat. We had a, we had a pitch to all ed departments. So they had this room that was sort of so like the gladiators arena. Coliseum. Coliseum. And yeah. we were down in the center and all of these stadium seats out around us. And so I was pitching the show and I'm talking to everybody, to the international department, to the promotional department, the marketing department, uh, all these different people who were jumping on board our project. It, it was, was surreal. It was not only the, all the staff introducing to all the staff at Netflix in that building, the Sunset Building, there were screens all around the perimeter. So they, Netflix is a huge worldwide company. So they had people from all around the world uh, tuning into this uh, introduction. So we, you know, we took them through the, the pitch, the concept, and you know, uh, the whole concept. And then they asked questions about it. It was, it was great. It was really cool. I mean, was, but you guys have been in the industry for like 30, 40 years. So you're like, ah, I got this. <laughs> well, it is always, no matter how long you've been in it, in the beginning, there's this anxiety, this kind of tension. But then once you get into it, once you start talking, it just melts away and you're just engaging people. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a little bit of everything. Tell me like what has changed in Hollywood in the last decade? Costs have gone up. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's more expensive. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, um, what's changed is it feels like we're back in the 80s. And I mean, from like a creative standpoint. In the 80s, you had the, um, the home video boom you know, uh, video rentals. And now in this uh, century, the new century, um, the internet streaming has exploded. So you've got all these uh, new entities, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, YouTube, now Disney Plus and Peacock. So all, you've got all these new entities that are just uh, hungry for content. Yeah. So yeah. it's a great time to be out there be a creator. That's exactly right. I mean, the only reason why we got Killer Clowns made was because we're trying to fill Blockbuster and these video stores with new content. So we looked out. Now here we are in the new century. You've got streamers looking for content. Just they need more content to compete for that, for the top dog in the streaming world. And we were very fortunate to have a project that kind of fit the needs. So same thing, what, uh, 40 years later? Yeah, and it, it's, it's even more interesting now with the explosion of all, all the cable networks, all the streaming networks is you've got little niche programming. So even though Alien Christmas has a broad appeal, 
you know, it doesn't have to be broad. You, if you've got a horror, you know, concept you want to do, you've got outlets like uh, Shutter, where you can, you know, you can just go to your niche audience. Yeah. And before there was never a big enough audience to justify doing a feature film because they couldn't make the money back on that small audience. So, or it limited the budget. Now, uh, it, that, that is new. And, and I guess technology has also changed too. Now they want things faster. Now incredibly fast, where we would have had a lot longer to shoot it in a traditional manner. Now uh, expectations are to turn things around much more quickly. How do you work that into your production schedule? Well, you, you actually create your schedule around that, that uh, parameter. I mean, Edward, you, you made it to what, 10 weeks pre-pro and then 10 weeks shooting and 10 weeks post. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, yeah. And, but the reality is uh, things always take longer than expected. When That's given true. more time, you use all of it, and then you're still scrambling at the end. Yeah. That's and, never changed. Um, that's always the case. But it's funny, like uh, the last project we shot using film, real 35 millimeter film, was L. And the part of the process then is you, you do a shot, you do the shot. You take the film out of the camera, send it to a little lab, and you wouldn't touch anything on that set until you got your film back dailies the following day. And then you'd see it. If it was good, you'd, you'd take the camera down, you'd do the next shot and move on. But in, um, in the digital world, you don't have that need. You, could, you see it as you're doing the shot. As soon as an animator is done, you can compile the movie, you can see the shot. You can give notes, you can go back and make changes on the spot as they're doing the shot or once after they're finished. So um, instead of, you know, waiting, doing a shot a day, you're doing, you know, sometimes three, four shots a day, depending on how complicated they were. So yeah. just the, the turnaround time in between setups is just so much more rapid. And that's all about because of technology. Yeah, I listened in another interview where I forgot what his name was, but he was talking about the eyes I forgot what the terminology. It was something Perfect. like the eyes were animated one way and then the mouth was animated another way. Like the mouth was computer generated. And actually, yeah, the, the eyes were physical props. We call it replacement animation. Yeah, replacement so animation. Moving, Can you break that down? Yeah. <laughs> actually uh, replace it with a whole, new, a whole new object. But the mouths were done in post, uh, 2D mouths that were then composited on the figures in post-production. I thought it was also interesting when you guys were talking about how you did one cheat shot and that that was okay because King Kong did a cheat shot too. <laughs> oh yeah, I think it was, uh, it was Charlie talking about uh, cheating the, um, the scale of the puppets. Yes. Um, you know, you do what you have to do to, all, to facilitate the needs of the shot. So our X character, the main character, had to be perceived as a doll for the little girl but it was just too small to animate for 90% of the show. We had what we called 100% X, who's about five and a half, six inches tall. But then when Holly, the little girl elf, holds him, we had a 90% X. So he was small when she was holding him and he was larger when he was operating the rest of the picture. You can't tell, but it was something we had to do just to make, to make it look reasonable when she was holding him like a doll. Yeah, because the smaller puppet was much more difficult to not only to fabricate, but then for the animators to actually animate. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't tell. I've watched it multiple times and tried to catch that even. <laughs> well, I think realistically, it wasn't the head the same size, but the body was 90% smaller? Because we no, used the I, same I, 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 don't, I don't remember if we did. I know there was talk of it, but I'm not sure we, if we actually followed through on it. And I think we did because uh, <laughs> yeah, then we would have to make all new eyes. So I yeah. think it was, we couldn't make them smaller because we didn't want to make another head, a smaller head, which means we had to make replacement eyes for that character. And the hat and the costumes, all it would have been. So we kept the head and we just shrink the body. Wow. Yeah, funky. Oh my gosh. Can you give the listeners a little bit of a background on what stop motion animation actually is? Uh, it's always a tough question to answer. <laughs> I guess it's like cartoon animation, which people understand more, you know, that separate drawings that when shown in succession, it creates the sense of mo the illusion of motion. Well, instead of individual drawings, we have a puppet that we pose and we take one frame of digital film at a time. And when you show them at 24 frames per second in succession, it simulates 
movement, just like a cartoon, but the three-dimensional objects moved on a set. And you've done this with all kinds of different puppets. Oh yeah. 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 Can you talk about the different puppets? Oh my gosh. I mean, your, your whole studio is just like a display case of unbelievable artwork. Well, we've done it well. Uh, Elf, we worked with John Favreau on Elf and he wanted to create a, a Rankin and Bass style holiday special stop motion feel with characters in the beginning to establish this North Pole. So he asked us to do some Rankin and Bass characters for the Arctic critters in the North Pole sequence. Uh, that turned out really well. We had uh, Leon the Snowman and we had the Narwhal, the Puffin and the Walrus. Arctic Critters, and we did that opening, and also the title sequence too, right? We uh, yeah, the, the animated book opening, the whole whole deal, yeah. And the other the other were like the more commonly uh, people call referred to stop motion animation as clay animation, but clay animation is actually a totally different type of puppet where it's physically clay that's resculpted for every frame. You know, Gumby is probably the biggest and best example of that. Will Vinton's. Uh, some of his projects, his biggest projects, uh, like the, the California Raisins, the uh, uh, Mark Twain, the Noi play yeah, from Domino's Pizza. Yeah. So yeah, early in, in my career, we uh, made the first feature-length clay animated film called I Go Pogo, based on Walt Kelly's Pogo comic strip back in the '60s and '70s, uh, and it was all clay. And then we did. Uh, we did. Oh, we did actually a character called Clay for Disney Channel. In fact, you were with us then, weren't you? Yeah, I was like, what happened to that interstitial? Yeah, it didn't quite make it to his show, but it was uh, well-loved by children all over, this little yeah, yeah. yellow blob of clay. That's funny, you know, you talk about the business, that was a kind of a classic example. There was a change in regime. The, uh, the president of the, of the channel moved on to something else and a new person came in and didn't, wasn't fond of clay. Uh, they had other ideas on what they wanted to do. So a new person comes in, they want to do their ideas, their projects, and uh, Clay was kicked to the curb. That's uh, harsh, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> and we've done some uh, Simpsons parodies too. During the, the, in the series, whenever they would do a parody of a uh, show or an, uh, a concept that was stop motion, they would have us do it. Like we did California prunes for the California raisins. We did uh, the Simpsons uh, version of the holiday Christmas specials with Jimmy Stewart playing the postman. Willis and, Willis and Crumble, which was a, a, a parody of uh, Wallace and Gromit, the Ardman style. Uh, and then we got to do a, a couch gag in Claymation with Gumby. So we, we've done, actually we've been very fortunate. We've done a lot of really cool things. And we did Large Marge in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. That was a, a real highlight to getting to animate in that, that movie. I so, loved Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> totally grew up on that. <laughs> what a shock. <laughs> oh my gosh. And talk to me a little bit about Team America. Was that the biggest production you guys have worked on? It was, it was the biggest feature we had worked on at the time. I'd say Alien Christmas turned out to be a, a lot bigger um, in terms of uh, budget and even uh, people for sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was the biggest feature that we ever keyed. And uh, that was just a, a monumental task. It was all puppets. It all came down to us, really. Uh, nothing could get done unless we were ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was just shooting puppets. Amazing team of people working on that one. It was uh, just the, the, the order, the, the number of puppets that had to be made and number of puppets that had to be turned around. Uh, at one time, we were shooting one or two setups with the principal photography crew and it was not gonna get the film done. So then we got to five setups on two different location stages at yeah. Fox and a warehouse. I mean, how, how many setups did we have going in one day? Like five or six? We had, five, we had five units going on in Culver City at the end. That was just in Culver City, but then Culver what City. about- And then we Fox? had two units at Fox. Yeah, so seven units going on concurrently. That's a, that was a hell of a production model to, to, uh, to output. The, their needs. It was a lot of work. Yeah, it's funny. People kind of joke at uh, you know our credit that we produced the puppets, but that was a, a production unto itself to get that going and, and then plug that that production into the bigger live action production that was going on. Even though it was a you know full on the you know visual effects movie, you know special effects movie, it was just daunting. Again, 
worked with some amazing people on that on that show. What do you still remember now about that? I'm tired. <laughs> Anxiety. I mean, you had string puppets with string lengths about 15 feet, get puppeteers to go on a man lift 15 feet above the stage, hand the puppets off to them, give them their monitors so they can see a camera tap video of what their performance is, give them the headphones, get them into position, get all this lined up, and then you start to shoot. Just the logistics of getting all of that machinery up in place took a lot longer than anybody ever imagined. You well, think puppets, you think, oh, how simple, just puppets. No, there's a technical aspect of getting them on stage that just takes time. And there was a, a reality of the, the fact that we were doing the puppets. So it started with us in terms of the, the prep process, process. It started with us and then ended with us. I mean, we had the basic puppet, but there was a full-on wardrobe team that would have to dress the puppet. They're very protective of their beautiful costumes. So they'd have to dress them, but then we'd have to work with them because then we'd have to string the puppets, put the strings through the wardrobe in a very specific way for in order them to move properly. And then once they got strung, they'd have to go to props to get their utility belts, their weapons, whatever, that sort of stuff. And then they came back to us to get them to, to the daughter's set. So if any one of those departments, or and then sometimes there's visual, you know, special effects, had to rig their guns to shoot. So if any one of those individual departments had a delay with their stuff, it slowed down the process. But because we were the last people to bring the puppet out to set, whatever delays those other departments had got blamed on us. <laughs> yeah. Where are the puppets? Oh, it's a waiting on puppets, waiting on puppets. Kyoto Brothers, where are the puppets? You don't want to hear why. It's their <laughs> coming. And it's, it, that was the, the tension, the anxiety that I felt. It just we could not ever get things done fast enough. Even with all the experience, that we gained in stringing the puppets. We used to take about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. We got it down to 45 minutes to restring the puppets. That alone, we could not do it any faster. Yeah, it we, was actually, we got it down to 20 minutes was all we could do a, a puppet in 20 minutes. Oh, really? So we got it? Yeah, oh. that, that, but that was it. It was, it, was, it was still 20 minutes a puppet. And we only had a certain amount of people that were qualified that could really do the job. So when, you know, we go in, we still had an overnight crew, a team that would prep the puppets and you know prepare them and prep them overnight. So one night they prepped 20 Korean soldiers and you know like another eight or 10 Korean dancers to do the, the, that, the following day's work. We come in the next morning, Trey's not super happy with the set that day and decides he doesn't want to shoot it. So we have to restring all these puppets because we had a limited amount of puppets. So we had to change these all, all these characters into different characters with different wardrobes. So, you know, the first half of the day is just, you know, sitting around waiting for the puppets to get restrung and redressed. Yes. And then the Panama Canal had a <laughs> giant dump tank. We had like, I don't know, maybe 25 puppets on the set, yeah. a lot of puppets. So they did their first take, the dam broke, all the pumps got swept away, strings broke, everybody was soaking wet. Okay, let's reset, do it again. Well, <laughs> yeah. it takes time. What, it took only a, a half a day. It took, did we do yeah. two shots a day on the Panama Canal? Uh, I think we got three, three takes out of it. So we had to take, fish them out of the water, dry them off, restring them. Yeah, it was just, it was a blast. I gotta say, as hard as it was, it's, uh, Certainly one of the highlights of the things we've done. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of times. <laughs> it was a, a lot of work, but well worth it. When we see the film, it consistently makes me laugh. It's unique. Again, we were very fortunate. We have a couple of films that we've worked on in the past, like Large Marge is iconic. I think Team America is unique in its technique and its styling. People know that film. So, and to be part of those projects and Elf, to be part of those projects, is, it's just pretty remarkable for anybody's career. Yeah, and to work with Matt and Trey, we had worked with them on their, on their That's My Bush show. So we knew, we knew what to expect with them, you know, really creative, thinking, always thinking on the spot, what can make it funnier, what can make it funnier. So we knew it would be a moving target to some degree. So as hard as we worked, the only, the only people that worked harder on that movie really were Matt and Trey. They were, worked tirelessly. They would work all day on Team America and then work on South Park at night. Uh, I don't know how they did it. 
Yeah, amazing, really talented. You know, you, you drove the hardest working guys we've worked with. They're just incredible, incredible talent. Do you remember all that was cut out of that script? Yeah. I sure do. <laughs> uh, the first time they presented it to us, we said, no, we didn't want to do it because it's just too complicated. And it came to us a second time. I mean, remember what was it? The Korean army and on the, the Golden Gate Bridge on the Golden Gate Bridge with the school bus filled with children. That, an earthquake. Guys, we don't know <laughs> if we can do this. It was the third time we said they made us an offer we couldn't refuse. <laughs> I think, too, there was like sex scenes with the puppets that was cut oh. out also. No, no. All the sex scenes were written. And none of that was cut out? None of it was cut out. Yeah. Those were pretty edgy. <laughs> I, I learned a new, couple of new positions that I'd never heard of before. Yeah, that was uh, great marketing brilliance on their part. You know, they, uh, they, knew, they knew what was going to get attention. They uh, really stayed really smart. Yeah, but actually we shot, we shot the, uh, the sex scene as originally envisioned. Yeah. And then, in the, you know, there was the theatrical cut. And then in the uncut version, it has those two extra little uh, moments. Right. Okay. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was an incredible, there was a whole sequence in that movie. And fun, true Thunderbirds fashion, when they get the call to duty, call to action, they go through their getting dressed and getting ready to get to their vehicles. So there was this, and they, they, they were in their pristine costumes, their, their keen outfits. And they were going down conveyor belts, apparatus that would flop them, like spatulas and this whole thing. We shot this whole sequence, sequences of them in their hero, hero puppets and hero outfits. And because they were like commercial grade rollers, conveyor belts and things, the puppets would get filthy when the, when the, the spatulas would flip them. The, the puppeteer, the guys that with the wranglers was to catch them, didn't catch them sometimes when they would land on the ground. We destroyed more we damaged more puppets and wardrobe in shooting of those sequences than anything else in the movie. And there's not a frame of it in the finished cut. Oh my God, a behind the scenes of that would have been so good. I'm, I'm waiting, maybe that maybe be at like a 25th anniversary and they'll show that stuff because it's, uh, it's pretty funny. Very funny. Oh my goodness. Do you feel like that production helped prepare you for Alien Christmas? All of them do in a different way. Yeah. Just the sheer bulk of the fabrication crew and the team we had. I mean, uh, delivering what they expected us to deliver and coordinating that team and, and, and a schedule, both two different schedules. We had a day crew and a night crew. All of that kind of, I mean, Edward was in charge of that part of it. And, and I guess that's what you had to do with the Alien Christmas as well, get the crew together. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, yeah, certainly you learn, you know, learn a lot. Every project, you learn new techniques, new materials, new way to do things. But, you know, the one thing is, it's, again, personalities is the one, the biggest learning thing about people. There's always new things going on between people that you kind of have to resolve. So when you have a crew as big as Team America, Team America was like me, I think over 80 people. I think we had 88 people working on that show. And I think we had 60 puppeteers there on one day alone. Where, yeah, yeah. We yeah. had that one shot in the theater. We had 80 puppets working 75 to 80 puppets and they were working too so we had like 40 40 puppeteers underneath that uh, set yeah so then you know then when you've got that many people together you've got the, those unique personalities dealing especially with puppeteers <laughs> yeah so and then uh, on, on on alien christmas we had a, a high watermark we had 104 people working on payroll at one time but then we had employed well over 200 people on the on the physical production of the stop motion work. And then the, by the time the end of it, we were over 300 people that worked on that show. So dealing with, the, again, the personalities, the idiosyncrasies, the needs of artists, especially, you know, that's what we need to execute. So it's a, that's always the interesting thing on a project, uh, dealing with the personalities. Yes, yes. I mean, you, you learn more about people than you learn about any technique in filmmaking uh, during a production. Again, as much as you think you're prepared for something, uh, something always comes up that you hadn't encountered before. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to hear about how you guys have managed to work together as brothers as long as you have, because you guys are all unique in your own way. I don't know. I guess we're in, in it too much to really have a, a, a point of view. We, we each do our own thing. Creatively, we kind of 
mix up and swap ideas. But then once that groundwork is done, we all go to our different corners. And I am on the front line of actually directing, but Edward's on the front line of producing, watching the budget and the cash flow and all of that stuff. And Charlie gets immersed in art creation. So although they all touch each other at various points, there's an opportunity to kind of go our separate ways, do our stuff and still kind of touch base. Yeah, we know what the end goal is. So we all work, we go cover our own areas to make sure that we're, we're going towards the same end goal. And being siblings, I guess, is a common language and mode of expression that we share so that usually even the most divergent ideas still are, are in, the same, in, in the same vein. They're close enough that you know, they're not actually off the wall. It's, it's a pretty good collaborative relationship. There's plenty of siblings that don't get along. <laughs> I mean, I'm just amazed at you guys have been in close quarters for years, all under the same roof. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, what is it? 1980? Yeah, October 1980, Charlie and I came out to California from the East Coast and started working. And then Edward came out, what, a couple of years later? 84. So we've been here that long. Wow, 1980. So I guess that's 20, that's 40 years here in, in California. Wow. And how did you first break into being able to pitch a show or a concept? Do you remember? Well, you know, we came out here to make movies, but we didn't know much about how the industry worked. We're not from California, so it's, it's not really an industry on the East Coast. So we've got, uh, we got jobs in the industry. I was a sculptor and an animator. Charlie was a designer, an artist, and we got into production and manufacturing mechanical props and things. So we used our art skills to get into the industry to learn as much as we can. And then because we always wanted to make films, I guess any opportunity we had, if somebody said, hey, we're looking for an idea, uh, does anybody have an idea for a movie? Uh, we would raise our hands and say, yeah, we had this. Like, a- Yeah, it's funny. Actually, we got, I just told the story yesterday, actually, that one thing is that there was a, we had been working, took some time off to do a little project of our own, which became a company ID, a thing called Dino Alley, a little stop, a little 45 second stop motion piece of a camera moving down an alleyway, then when you get the end of the alley, a little dinosaur, a punk rock dinosaur comes out and spray paints our name on the wall. And it was just a cute little ID, uh, and entered some festivals, won some festivals, and it caught the eye of a producer who was doing a dinosaur special for uh, KABC here in Los Angeles. Licensed the footage, and then kind of just got a friendship going with that producer, and then the executive at KABC. And he came to us and asked if we had any ideas because he had some money to do after school specials. And Charlie and Steve had this idea, I think called Cousin Kevin, that they pitched to him. He liked it, gave us some money. We supplemented it with some of our own money and produced a half hour TV special. And then, and then funny, from that, we had been working on Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. And um, the producer, that was a really tight, tight family group too. Fred Fuchs, the producer, saw Cousin Kevin and he really liked it. And he, uh, he had some friends who had just come in, had gotten the credit line to make movies. And he asked if we had any feature ideas. And he had Philly Clowns from Outer Space. So he brought us over to Transworld Entertainment, Moshe Diamant, Paul Mason, uh, and we pitched Killer Clowns from Outer Space, our very first feature film pitch. They brought it in the room. Yeah, and that was uh, 1986? Yeah. Yeah, So from 1980 to 1986, we were working our way through industry, and we got our feature film six years into our California. Yeah, but the the point of that was what really kind of uh, started was the fact that we took time to do something for ourselves, to show that we were, you know, filmmakers, storytellers. Yeah, work gets work. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's just something as simple as a, a, a funky looking dinosaur spray painting our name on a wall just kind of opened up a, a huge opportunity for us. And then obviously having, being in the right place at the right time with, with people that meant something. Fred Fuchs was supposed to produce Killer Clowns with me. And it was funny, he, he calls me one day, he asked me if we wanna, I wanna go have breakfast with him. So we go, we go down to Gower Gulch, we're at the Danny's having breakfast. And he tells me, Ed, I just got a call from Francis Ford Coppola who had directed Ruth Van Winkle for Fairytale Theater, and they got, they got really friendly. He says he's asked me to, if I could come and produce Tucker for him. You know, is it okay if I go take that job and not produce Kill Clowns from Outer Space with you? <laughs> what are you going to say? He got, <laughs> got a call from Francis Ford Coppola. So we said, okay. 
<laughs> You're like, call me after. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting. So it's, it's who you work with. You kind of make these connections as liaisons. And again, one of those kind of connection stories, we were working on Land of the Lost, Cinematic Cross revival of the 70s show. We were doing it in the 90s. We hired a young man, uh, Joe Bauer, as a uh, cinematographer, a DP, an effects cameraman. And he was great. And that was our connection. Years and years later, Joe Bauer was working for John Favreau. John wanted to do stop motion. He said, and Joe said, hey, if you want to do stop motion, I know the guys to call. So he told John about us. We got involved with John. That connection through Joe got us John, and then John got us Alien Christmas. It's funny how these connections work in the industry. You meet these people, and you kind of work with them, hopefully, in the future. It's, uh, that's what it is. That's networking. It's doing work, keeping busy. You guys are excellent relationship builders, though. I was talking with Ed earlier about Bob Self. I remember you guys were talking to him 14 years ago or even longer when I was working for you guys. Yeah, Again, just one of those one of those connections, you know, through a, through a mutual friend, Mike Van Eaton, Van Eaton Galleries, you know, hey, this publisher, he does kind of cool things. And when we pitched him the book, he, he saw the potential. He, it was different for him than what he normally had done, but he, he sparked the story and kind of made it all possible even though alien x started off as a pitch for a, ultimately what it became you know it took that bizarre route through uh publishing is there any way that like netflix like markets differently or now that you've worked with them how can you leverage that even more i i don't, I don't know it's a good question i mean i right now i think they were, they're happy with the product we created with alien christmas i think we'll see how well it does there's opportunities there to do more if they choose to. We have tons of ideas we'd like to do with them, but it's really kind of out of our control at this point. Uh, let's see how they respond to it. We'd like to continue our relationship with John. He's an extraordinary talent, a wonderful collaborator. Couldn't tell you enough about how wonderful it was working with John. Uh, it was a great experience and we learned a lot. Hopefully we'll be able to do more with him. He's, he's a fan of stop motion and, and fantasy, which are two things that we are definitely involved in. Yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about Netflix is because they're a worldwide company, they're so diverse, they're always looking for new projects, they need to keep their pipeline flowing. It's not like, I mean, they do acquisitions, but even that's, that's going to become a, a smaller part of their business because all the major studios are, are, you know, really doing their own streaming services and things. So, you know, so the acquisition licensing feature films to Netflix for exhibition I think that's going to go large and large go away. The studios are going to keep it for their own little, their own streaming thing. So it's really going to be contingent. Uh, Netflix's continued rise upward is going to be contingent on the quality of their original prog program. And mm -hmm. it's just not feature films. It's television series. It's, you know, the short form documentaries, holiday specials, and, you know, one-offs, just whatever, whatever strikes them, that is interesting. They give a op great opportunity for creators to, uh, to execute. And they're, I wouldn't say they're hands off, but at the end of the day, when it's a final creative decision, they are pretty hands off. They let the creators do what their vision is. I heard you say that in another interview. That's really incredible. I mean, you must have enjoyed that. Yeah, it was no. really great. I mean, especially when you have somebody like John Favreau on your team. I mean, it's, it's tough to second guess John. You know, his instincts are pretty freaking good. Um, he made some a couple of mid-course corrections that, and uh, that you know maybe we were a little reluctant during the process, but in hindsight they were 100% spot on. And uh, and Netflix was to their credit, they planted a seed early on on something that turned out to be really, really good. Uh, they 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 asked about diversity in the cast, and our first our, again our knee-jerk reaction was they're elves. The elves are <laughs> unto themselves. Like how do you have diversity within an elf community? But then we started looking at it and explored a little bit more. And uh, we did introduce a diverse elf cast. And it, uh, it is something just, it's not, it's, not a, it's not blatant, it's there. And it just feels, feels right. Uh, it, feel, it feels like con a contemporary film and it feels like the real world. You don't notice it, just like the real world. There's a diversity in our real world. So Netflix, they, they, were, they were partners, they're creative partners and they have their agenda, they have their needs, how they want to, they know their, their, their audience. So again, it was a creative relationship. They made their suggestions and we kind of kind of had brainstormed with them. And we, we took a lot of their suggestions and I'm really glad. It, it, it made our film better. What they brought to the table, 
definitely what John brought to the table really uh, strengthened our story and made it a better product. That's amazing. So how can someone, a creator who's, you know, not been in the industry, but has written a book or has a series idea, get invited to the Coliseum? <laughs> oh, well, I, there might be opportunities to present product or our concepts to Netflix straight. What I tell people is um, you need an advocate sometimes. You might not be a proven entity, even with all of our experience, you know, who the Kyoto Brothers really. So if there's a, a personality, a talent, an actor that you like, you like their work, you like their style. A lot of these actors have uh, production companies present to them. Mm. And if uh, some of these, some of this talent, whether they're writers, whether they're actors, whether they're producers, uh, if they take a shine to your product, they might represent it. They might be able to take it to that next level that you might not be able to reach on your own. I mean, if you don't have an agent or, a repre or representation, you might not be able to get through the gatekeepers at Netflix. But you might be able to make your way through a production company of a writer or an actor or a producer and present your work and then use them as a, 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 as a partner. Have you guys taken pitches? Uh, yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we do. Because we have... a pretty specific brand things that we like we don't we do we do collaborate with outside things we have taken pitches uh in the past it's a it's it, it's tough to say you know when we take pitches and what we spark to uh, but you never know we're always you know there are just a, there's a bunch of young talent that we like to work with uh, you know chris sickles is an artist that we love his work there's a project that which we've been trying to get off the ground with him for years now so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty specific. Uh, again, we're not a, we're not a, with like a traditional production company where we have a development wing and things. It's all, it's self-development. It's things we're passionate about. We're, we're not major talent. We're like mini minor talents. So when people come to us, we could, we could open some doors with our contacts, but there are people that have a, have a, a, a greater contact list than we do but we but some people do come to us with really wonderful ideas and we try we take what experience we have what contacts we have and we try to get films made but like alien christmas 14 years 15 years since its original inception that's how long it took to get that with all the ups and downs 15 years of pitching that was like a, a second occupation we would put together our presentation and we would go out pitch all the major studios pitch to the networks and then when musical chairs change heads of departments, we'd go back to the same studios and we'd pitch again until we actually got it sold. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a life's journey, really. It takes a long time. Yeah, I mean, again, there's, there's no one path to it. You know, if, uh, if somebody, you know, makes a movie and gets a, is able to get into the festival circuit and get a couple of awards, that's, that's a bit of a calling card. Uh, mm -hmm. That's how you get agents. That's how you get distribution deals. You know, now more than ever, you don't necessarily need that route. I mean, you could self-publish and, you know, you can self-publish a book, you can self-publish any product you, you, see, you see. Distribution is always the key, getting eyeballs. You can make a movie, put it up on YouTube or Vimeo, but it's how do you drive people to watch it? How do you get people to see it? That's always the, always the trick. And that's where the, uh, the, mar the big marketing push the, of the, uh, the studios is always, their muscle is, is meaningful. Uh, that's not gonna go away. Yeah, and for young people who want to, to, let's say, make this, get through this pathway here, again, making a film, entering it in festivals, because a lot of festivals, when you attend, if you were to win an award, there were producers there who looked for talent and alliances. Uh, if they see your film and they like it, it speaks to them. Some of these producers want to back a director. They might have uh, access to money for funding. So by winning a festival, you have access to producers who are looking for talent, and that's another wonderful marriage. Uh, a director, writer, director, and a producer. And he'll bring the money and the production, and uh, you bring the art, the creative talent, and that team can then go out to studios. There's no single way to do it. Working in the industry and meeting people is one way. Making films and entering festivals is another way. Uh, doing things on YouTube, getting those eyeballs is another way. A lot of development people now are looking to YouTube. If you've got a YouTube, video that's got a million hits, believe me, the development executives are looking at the internet for those breakout things. We worked on one film that started out as, it's, it's a feature now, but it started out as little uh, YouTube videos. And yeah, there's something, a uh, husband and wife team, a little character that they came up with. They did a, a YouTube short, caught on 23 million viewers. They did another one, they did another one, two books, a producer, 
that knew them optioned the property, got it set up as an indie indie movie, and we just finished principal photography of the animation. That was the project that got shut down during COVID. You know, that was a 10-year journey or eight-year journey for them as well. But it started out with something as simple as or fooling around, coming up with funny voices, created a character, did a little movie, posted it, and it hit. So everybody has that opportunity now. You really do. I, I believe that. I was combing YouTube when I was working for America's Got Talent. Yeah. Just looking for people that started their own YouTube channels that were undiscovered that had beautiful voices, like raw talent. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yes. Another thing is that shows you how many people in America don't have talent. <laughs> <laughs> that that like too. <laughs> Well, my dad was like, oh, maybe we can, you know, turn Better Call Daddy into a series. I was like, ah, oh, let's just start with the podcast. But he has dreams of his own show. That's how this all started. He was like begging me for the last 20 years to create a show. But it's fun because I get to showcase, you know, that I'm good at casting people and that I'm good at cutting a story together. And it keeps me social in the evening and it's creative. It, it's amazing now, like what you said, that anybody can create their own show. And if you reach yeah, an audience, you, you, have. Up, you, could, yeah. you could attract the big boys and get things produced. It's, it's very possible. Very possible. And the, and the access you have to people, you know, you have access to people all around the world now, especially now everybody kind of working in isolation, largely in isolation. We, we finished Alien Christmas remotely. You know, Stephen was working out of his house. I was working out of my house. Our VFX supervisor was working out of his apartment. And we're all, we'd all get on with the editor, we'd get on a video call and we'd review shots, we'd look at different cuts. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, you can do things uh, remotely now. It's uh, pretty interesting. You connect with different people from all around the world. Do you think it's going to change the future of production? I think it already has. I think some, some certain places will rethink the big office. You know, if you, why have people working in a big room and working in cubicles and they could be working from home. Um, what we do is a little more difficult because we have a tangible aspect to our, our job. You know, we, at a certain point, we need to be in a shop building things. We need to be on a stage, a studio with camera people, animators, fabricators, setting up shots to physically move puppets. So in our world, there's always going to be the need for the physical facility. But, you know, but the pre-production, all the writing, even the storyboard animatics on AX was done remotely. Our head of story was in Atlanta, working with storyboard artists here and Stephen in Los Angeles. So that was done remotely. And then post, in theory, um, if it had been set up that way, it would have been a little smoother. But post could have all been done remotely, too. Yeah, I, I think there will be a move to embrace where we are right now. But if people had the money, if the budget can afford it. I think it will go back to the same old. There's nothing like being in the same room. All the things that I would describe that are being done online are adequately being done, but there's still there's something about that in-person that in-person connection that I think if you could afford it, people will go back to that. Yeah, that. I don't disagree with that. Yeah, but I mean, I, it's both. Yeah. It will change, but I do think it's something we all want. Yeah, because that was the biggest thing. You know, just like. Even getting back when I was just saw the, this indie project, getting it back up and running, just it was, it was really, I, you know, we had, we had to have meetings with all the departments and it was just, it was a, the same meetings in person would have been delightful and, you know, would have been more engaging, but doing, you know, five, one hour Zoom calls back to back was just exhausting, yeah. you know, and it just wasn't, yeah, it didn't have the sense of community. And even when we went back to production, it was so, even though we were in the same building together, but by design, because we had to uh, remain isolated. So no more than three or four people could ever be on a set at the same time. We didn't have our big board meetings. So we had the AD at the big board going through the, the work for the day, but everybody else, even if they were in the facility, everybody was joining in on Zoom. People couldn't have lunch together because we were trying to maintain social distancing. It was, it was bizarre. We got through it. Uh, and morale was good because it was a great bunch of people. But uh, it, it, it's, it would be tough to live life like that for the long term. I do feel like a lot of Hollywood is that social interaction. Like deals are made over meals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a relationship. <laughs> that's a relationship. You know, they're saying it's who you know. Yeah, it is. 
And uh, it's a lot of luck, but you make your own luck by working, meeting people, and just getting to know people. Not everybody likes us. There are people that get along. People have common expressions. When you meet that, it's like a little oasis of people that think alike and are creative. Look at the team that Tim Burton put together. Danny Elfman, Colleen Atwood, Rick Heinrichs. These are people that he's worked with before. They have a communication that works really well. Why do you want to change? You know, you, you, these are people you work with. So you hope to create that kind of community of creative collaborators so that you continue with these people. And I think by working in the industry, you find those people, you find those connections and you work together and always leave options to meet new people. You bring new people in and you find it. It's really great as an artist, as a creative person, mixing with new people, getting new ideas. It just keeps things going. It's very, it's uh, exciting. Do you feel like in the beginning of your Hollywood journey that you met people that may have promised you the stars, but some of those opportunities didn't happen? Yeah, but uh, what really strikes is the ones that said, you'd never work in this town again. Those are the ones we laugh at. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think, <laughs> you know, them. maybe because, you know, maybe we're just maybe naive and stuff. I don't know. I, I always take a pretty realistic view of, of people. You know, what are you doing? It's like in front of it. You know, we didn't hang too heavily on the promises and things. If it didn't materialize, we would move on. If it did, we know not to alienate anybody. We would treat everybody fairly and the same. Hey, that's great. We'll help you out. If it's a habit of repay us down the line, that's great. But I don't think we ever really hung on to like any real false promise. Uh, you know? No, we learned pretty early, I think, Edward, that when uh, you got this job or the promise of a job, we didn't run out and buy a new car or, or buy a house. Because nine times out of 10, those best intentions just don't work out. This is a complicated business. And, and not, not that and it's it's really going to happen, but sometimes it just doesn't through no fault of your own. Yeah, again, even with people, they promised to us work down the line, you know, and it didn't happen. Well, you know, because we've been in that position where, again, we don't necessarily promise people we're going to do that because we, we're not in that position maybe to give that, grant that later down the line because things are out of control. You know, you, you, you like to bring people along, but circumstances don't always allow it. You know, the people you're working for have their own ideas. So, so I think we've been pretty good about that. You know, we, we try and stay loyal to the people that have helped us along the way. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't, it doesn't work out. And in the same way for us, where people that we've helped out in the past have gone on and they haven't been able to, you know, repay, you know, a, a favor or whatever, just because they're not, they're not calling the shots at that point for, yeah. for our particular area. So, really you know, I think, I think we've done, I think we've done good by Hollywood and I think Hollywood's done good by us. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to tell. So what's next? Like, who would you guys love to collaborate with? Oh, interesting. Well, continuing with John would be a really, uh, really big feat for us. It'd be fun. I don't know. I, I guess I, I never really look at it as, as that. I look at projects and ideas and concepts, worlds and characters that we want to create. And I guess once that's solidified, then we look for people who, would, who have like minds and might want to collaborate with us. So it kind of works that way. I can't think of uh, the Duffer Brothers, I think, would be a riot work with those guys uh, it's funny that their their creative sources like the 80s the films that we were making the special effects for when they were inspired and we were inspired by the films that we saw in the 50s and 60s well they are essentially the same movies so it'd be good to collaborate with these guys from a different generation with really the same seed let's call it that that we both were inspired by the same kinds of stuff that would be something would be interesting to, to collaborate with same answer for you ed yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I can't. I can't think uh, name anybody in particular because again, it's the uh, it's the the projects. It's the project somebody's talking to us about right now. The, you know, the creators are you know really creative, but it's the project that I mean, I didn't didn't know the creators before this project was introduced to us, and it's just really intriguing. Something very special about it. So yeah, it'd be it'd be a cool thing. Then you know, we've met the creators, and I, I think we hit it off pretty well. And you know, it'd be really intriguing to see what the next step on that project is because so the things that they're talking about how they approach it is uh, resonates with how we want to do things so uh yeah so it's, uh, I think it's probably the, the the project that generates the who we work with yeah and, and that's it's not that we go out and solicit these things it's really based on our work uh, i think they have a concept they're looking for people who do this kind of animation and they 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 come to us with the concept and then we talk it out creatively and if they feel comfortable that we're on board creatively 
uh, with their vision, that's where the connections made. And it's, that's started with the work you do. Have you guys ever reached out to like KTLA to try to like be covered by them or anything? How do you mean exactly? I mean, now they have their own podcasts and influencers and they feature stories of people that have been in the industry like you guys have. Yeah, yeah, we've, you know, not, you know, we've had some coverage, you know, we, we had a, a publicist for a while uh, and she was, she was great without steady projects and it, it's a, an expense we, we couldn't and didn't really, couldn't really pursue, you know, on a regular basis. You know, um, typically when on the projects we tap into the marketing, Netflix marketing on Alien Christmas has been wonderful. Mm-hmm. We've done a ton of press on it. It's funny that it hasn't been picked up by the local the local papers. I remember on um, Dinner for Schmucks, we, when we did all the, the Meister, all the Steve Carell work, uh, we were featured in uh, LA Times. They came out. So, you know, we get a, we get a decent amount of press. Um, yeah. It's funny, you know, it's uh, often we're, we're just too busy doing the projects to promote ourselves in that way. And that's where we just, you know, we, we yeah. kind of have a, a small, you know, small core group of us here that we keep on. So, yeah, we're not, we're not, we haven't gone into all that, well, no Hollywood frills. We don't have a manager. We have an agent. We have attorneys. You know, we had a publicist that we hired as needed. Yeah. It's amazing all that you guys have done. I was just thinking I could see them covering your story. So I was just wondering if you were interested yeah, no, it's a good in idea. opportunities. Uh, it, it would be great. I mean, uh, promotion is good publicity. As it gets closer to Christmas and mm. the holidays, I think Netflix is going to give a second push on Alien Christmas for the holidays specifically, that might be an opportunity for more promotion. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess we're, we're just artists creating stuff we like. And I guess we don't really think of that, at least I don't think of that angle. Yeah, really whether there would have been some sort of a more traditional junket for the project had we not been in COVID, uh, I don't know. Mm. Well, there might have been. We go back to the lobby at Netflix. We were yeah. so looking forward to having that lobby just become our winter wonderland of Santa's village and having some of the props and set pieces in the lobby to kind of, you know, help promote it. It would have been just a wonderful way to kind of promote it within the community, which is again, media, and it might've kind of parlayed into other things, but because of COVID, it didn't really happen. But uh, hopefully the project will speak for itself. People will see it and people write about it, talk about it, and and we'll see. It still is time to uh, get more promotion out of it. For sure. Is there anything that you would like to ask my daddy? <laughs> what does your daddy do? <laughs> so he actually was an entrepreneur too. He ran a lighting manufacturing company with his dad for over 40 years. His dad did lights on Broadway, yeah. but now I he's... My, I was one of my original career paths. I went, to, I went to school for lighting design. I was, was on a track to be a Broadway lighting designer. No okay. way. Yeah, but the fascination with film and storytelling went out, went out. So cool. Yeah, I think he worked on the original Fiddler on the Roof, even. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, that, that's great. Oh, Broadway's totally unique. You know, it's only one Broadway in the world. That's really fun. We, we even got to do that with, with Pee Wee Herman, the Pee Wee's Playhouse. Went to Broadway. So you know, Really? A little thing on my, even though I, I didn't get to do lighting design on Broadway, I did get in a playbill for a Broadway show because we did the props and everything for that show. So a little my little thing on my bucket list. That's true. I, that's where I think we've been very fortunate. That three brothers came to California to make a career in entertainment, and we've done a TV, a television show. We've done a movie. We've got a book. We have a TV special. We've we've touched Broadway a little bit. For any creative person, I think those are pretty good marks, and uh, we hope to do more. But still, that's that's a pretty pretty cool career. Amazing. Amazing. It's so great catching up with you guys. I just wanted to ask one more question because I haven't talked to Roger in forever. Have you guys talked to him? I just talked to him last week. Yeah. How is he? He's, uh, he's hanging in there. Roger is, uh, as much as he says he doesn't want to live, he lives pretty well. No, he's, uh, he's okay. He's going through some tough times, but he's in Palm Springs. Okay, yeah. so he's still in Palm Springs. Wow. Yeah. What you guys did to help him is just so admirable too. Yeah, no, it's, uh, he's worth it. He was uh, he he stuck with us through some uh, really tough times, and uh, he's a good good person. So he's helped so many other people. So definitely it was a pleasure, pleasure to help him out. Um, you know, out of, when he was having some tough times. Yeah, he's good. Um, you know, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, I mean, again, he still has some you know medical issues here and there, but uh, 
although he sa- he sounds good. Yeah, he's uh, in, living it up in Palm Springs. That sounds fabulous. Yeah, yeah. A lot warmer than Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's a little oh. crazy, but yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you his, um, his info. And send my regards to Charlie. Is he still drawing dinosaurs? So all he does is draw dinosaurs. Clowns. <laughs> dinosaurs and clowns. Aw. And I just, his kids are probably so grown up. I remember Tori coming by. Is she married now? Or <laughs> but They're in their early 30s or late 20s now. <gasps> yeah, late 20s, yeah. That makes uh, me feel yeah. old. <laughs> yeah, none of them married. Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, this has been so great. It's wonderful to see you. And I'm so just excited for your Netflix special. And you guys should have an amazing holiday season. Thanks, Thank Nina. You, you too. It's so good to see you again. You're the Thanks same. for being on Better Call Daddy. <laughs> I cannot wait for my dad's response. Here we go. This is really an incredible story of the Kyoto brothers. The interview is close to an hour. It's just a few seconds under 60 minutes. And I can't see you cutting any of it out. It's really a tremendous, heartfelt uh, interview, a wonderful reaction between the, the questioner and the questions that you, that you presented and the smoothness and the spirited conversation of so many lessons in this story that I just can't see how it can be less than an hour. That's number one. Number two, you can be creative. You can uh, have wonderful ideas. And yet, just like in other incidences in life where people also need a platform to be able to get their ideas out. And it takes knowing people, yes, but really being able to work with people and to be able to present things where you have to have the financial backing There's so many integral parts to success that it's not just one thing where it just falls out of the sky and lands in your lap. It's a collaboration that can go on for years. And here they have this breakthrough with Netflix, and it's not an overnight sensation. It's a project that they've been working on for 14 years, and it's finally come to fruition. It's just incredible that people could hear it. Some people might have liked it. People, there's personnel changes at production companies and studios where all of a sudden it looks like it's going to take off and somebody doesn't like it or doesn't want to pursue that, that area. But to be part of animation, to be part of being, dealing with people that, that work puppets and their motions for different films or different series, there's, there's so much to it where everything has to be done just just right and perfectly to make it funny, to make it where people will watch it and where uh, it has a chance to uh, even have relevance depending on the time. And look how with the COVID-19 out, people couldn't even go to the movie. So actually picking and choosing a, a streaming idea to present this project turned out to be the right move. And yet uh, the normal tradition that they uh, were searching out was to maybe make a movie out of all of this which might not have really been right for this particular assignment or project. And picking the streaming maybe was right under any circumstances. But look how things evolve and yet how things can stay the same, where being creative, understanding different characters and people that have had great ideas from 20 or 30 years ago can be applicable today if you know how to pivot and be able to add or change different things to meet people's needs of today. And some of them are still the needs and wants of things from years past. To be able to uh, put that all together is an amazing story. It's part of life's journey. It's building and growing and developing your ideas, but to surround yourself with creative people, to be able to understand the finances, the personalities of different people, being open to other people's ideas, to be able to brainstorm and put something together is part of the story. You were right when you mentioned that the reason why people got so along with my dad is that he also had a very diverse background. He had a military background. He knew what it was to run the streets of New York City. And yet at the same time, he had a family life and decided to one day 
with the help of his son and his wife. And of course, his daughters got involved at various times. But like I said, I think we helped them more than they helped, helped us in the business, that's for sure. But the fact is, is that the board of directors of Metalite, which uh, you mentioned to them, is that we had even we had different ideas, but we could you know bounce them off each other. But the fact is, is that we had very distinct areas that we were experts in, and we're able to put together a company with you know many other integral parts and personnel that we were able to add that really gave everyone a chance to be part of a winning team, and yet you could be an individual and be able to also be creative and be able to, 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 to grow in your own way within the organization. I think that's very important. I think something that you kind of touched on is that they have evolved and they've played the relationship game really well. They are excellent at the relationship between uh, the- each other and with the people that they've met along the way. Like they even treated me like Absolutely. family and hiring me. Absolutely. The, the smoothness of the conversation, their personalities coming out where they didn't hold back. They were able to reveal all the intricacies of their business. It's just a, a wonderful story for everyone to hear. It's again, something very unique type of interview that you only get on Better Call Daddy with uh, Rena Joy Friedman Watts. It's just uh, a wonderful show and just a wonderful interview. You could play this interview three or four times and get a new twist of understanding of life itself from this interview. It's really magnificent. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now... Only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show.